right? Take a mental cup of coffee. We are going to read a very long bit of Revelation. So if you turn to page 1037 um, with me. <coughs> And we're going to start at chapter 17, uh, verse 1 to the first part of verse 6. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. And with the wine of whose sexual immorality, the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit to a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of the abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of Mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Next, on to chapter 18, starting at verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright by his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich with the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice saying from heaven, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, and death and mourning and famine, and she'll be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth, who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her, will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. And they will stand far off in fear and torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Next, on to chapter 19, verses 6 to 8. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. 
for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of all the saints. And finally, Revelation chapter 19, uh, starting at verse 11, on to chapter 20, verse 10. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of the Lord, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of the horses and the riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who was in its presence, who had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and the birds were gorged with their flesh. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the keys to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years are ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Please have a seat. 
Thank you very much to um, Simon for reading such a lot. That's uh, really helpful for us to, to see from the book what God has to say to us tonight. Um, lots, to, lots to learn and see from. Let's pray for God's help. Our Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things out of your word. For your name's sake, amen. It is often hard for us to see the true nature of things, isn't it? For example, it's easy to misjudge value. I don't know if you saw the story from the papers a couple of weeks ago about a person who who spent £700,000 on a house in London as an investment. It was a Victorian end terrace, pretty solid, you would have thought. But only a few months later, it completely fell down in a pile of rubble while he was having work done on it. Really hard to to see the true value of a thing sometimes. Or it's easy to misjudge people. I love the true story from a few years back about the thief at um, Seville Airport in Spain who ran off with the handbag of an American tourist without realizing that the two gentlemen she'd been sitting with were Olympic sprinters Larry Wade and Morris Green, who at one time had held the men's 100-meter record as the fastest man on the planet. This book that we're studying is called Revelation because that's what it gives us. It pulls back the curtain, the veil, to show us what this world is really like. It shows us the spiritual realities underneath and behind life as we normally see it. These are things that are normally hidden, but which nonetheless shape our lives. That's the point. It's very simple. The clue's in the name. Revelation reveals what's really going on. We've seen, as we've looked at it over the last few weeks, that it was originally written for suffering Christians in the first century. It calls them to patient endurance. It does that by explaining their experience. As you pull back the curtain, you find that this universe is a spiritual war zone. There are great forces of evil at work against God and against his people, and that's why Christians face so much often. But it also gives them hope. Because the other thing revealed here is that the outcome of this great spiritual war is never in doubt. Jesus will win. And so hang on in there with him. And to us, this book gives exactly the same encouragement. But it's also a challenge. If our lives, and for many of us they will be, if our lives are a little bit more comfortable than those of John's original readers, this book asks us to wake up to what this world is really like. There's a spiritual war raging. It asks us, which side are you on? How engaged are you? All of this has come through a series of um, vivid pictures and visions. That's how the book works. The Apostle John saw these overwhelming visions, and then he wrote them down in violent pictorial language. There's a lot of symbolism in the book. It's not so much there to communicate literal detail as to make a powerful impression of what the world is like. As Simon read, you you might have seen a repeated phrase, then I saw. I think that's how this passage splits itself up. There are four visions, then I saw. It comes four times. And in each case, we'll see that it's showing us something that we, we might not otherwise have acknowledged. Four visions leading up to, as we'll see next week, the climactic final vision of the book, then I saw 
a new heavens and a new earth. Four things, four visions. You can see on the sheets how I've tried to sum them up. John says that this world, though seductive, will fall in disaster. He says that... um, the Lord Jesus. He's the lamb and the judge. It says that Satan, though raging, is bound and doomed. And it says that although justice is rare in this world, it will fully and finally be done. That's what this passage reveals, four visions. And I want to say right at the start that this is much more than just a matter of intellectual curiosity. This is here to shape our whole approach to life. Think about that person who spent 700 grand on a house. It must have looked like a great investment. It must have looked like it would promise great returns, great security, bricks and mortar. If only he had known that it would all come crashing down. And so John says to us, this world, it looks so attractive. It looks so safe as we are tempted to invest more and more of our loyalty, our time, into it. It looks so secure, but it will all come crashing down as we read, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. You wouldn't know it as you look around you that this world is terribly insecure, ultimately short-lived. Or think about that Spanish pickpocket. If only he had known who he was dealing with. And John says to us, look a bit more closely at the Lord Jesus. Yes, he's the lamb that was slain. He's also the rider on the white horse, a warrior, the judge. These visions pull back the veil for us. They show us what we cannot otherwise see, and they invite us to live in the light of real reality. So let's have a look at them each in turn. Starting off then, in chapters 17 and 18, we see that the world, though seductive, will fall in disaster. As we look at those chapters, it's a horrifying vision, isn't it? John sees a seductive woman named, um, named Babylon. She's wearing the most luxurious clothes. She's wearing wonderful jewelry. She has power. She is, she is alluring and tempting. But she's also horrifying. She's a prostitute. What she offers is not wholesome or good. She is splendid in a way, but also shameful and sordid. In verse 3, we read that she rides upon the beast, that symbol of spiritual evil that we've seen throughout the book. Or in verse 7, we read that she is drunk with the blood of God's people. This is a vision of the world, yes, in splendor, but also set against the Lord. Babylon, um, city from the very beginning of the Old Testament was the place where humanity exalted itself against God, lifting up our human glory over against his. And that image of the city is is mixed with the image of a prostitute. Why? Because while this world offers so much, it demands payment in return. In order to enjoy the things of this world, you have to do things you shouldn't do, things perhaps you wouldn't otherwise want to do. It's mentioned here how uh, the prostitute is seated on seven mountains, and probably for first century readers, they would have seen that as a reference to Rome, the city of Rome, which famously built um, 
like Edinburgh, I think, on seven hills. And um, we can imagine how in the Roman world there would have been great pleasure, wealth, power available for people who would fit in and, and play the game and who would prioritize the things of the world and live that way. But of course, it's still true, isn't it? We feel the same seductive pull today in different ways in our lives. All of us will. You know, I, I want that job. I want that kind of lifestyle. I want that person's body. I want that prestige. It's the seduction of Babylon, and we all feel it. Think about the, um, the person at work who is reduced to very sharp practice in order to get ahead. It leaves a nasty taste in everybody's mouth, but it's what you have to do, isn't it? It's the way of the world. Or think about the school pupil pressured into doing things that they wouldn't do, shouldn't do, in order to find popularity or to fit in. It's the way of the world, isn't it? It's just what you have to do. Or on the world stage, or the corporate stage, think about the greed, the aggression, fueled by this thirst for more and more luxury that we don't really need. Or think about, much more simply, family relationships sacrificed on the altar of achievement. This is Babylon. She is seductive. Her rewards are very sweet. But only for a time. As John's vision goes on into chapter 18, he hears an angel proclaiming the judgment of God. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. In verse 11, the merchants mourn because all of their investments are ruined and their luxury export markets have been shut down. They mourn. But the people of God rejoice because behind the party atmosphere of the world, there was in fact a ruthless cruelty that either would squeeze people into its mold or else crush them if they resisted. Have a look, please, at the start of chapter 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her, her, her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. This is what John is showing us behind the curtain, that the world, though seductive, will fall in disaster. And the point for us, well, I think it's about seeing through the way things look now, seeing through appearances to the way things really are. If you choose to side with the world, to pursue its ambitions, to live by its standards, to go its way, if you give in to its attractions, well, it will look like you are on the winning side. You'll get ahead, you'll fit in, you'll have a comfortable life. But John is showing the reality behind that appearance, that everything the world has to offer is tinged with sordidness and impurity. It won't satisfy and it won't last. If you're not yet a Christian, uh, if you're not yet a convinced Christian, I wonder what you make of that. It's a bit bleak, perhaps, but is it realistic? That's the question. In his ministry, the Lord Jesus spoke about people working for bread that does not satisfy, or achieving, earning things that 
at the end of the day, don't count for anything in the face of death and of eternity. It's those kinds of warnings that John is echoing here. What are you investing your life in? Or if you're a Christian, then John is saying to us, don't be seduced. In chapter 18, look at verse 4. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. Don't be seduced. When you feel the pull of temptation this week, remember where it comes from. And remember the true reality of that. Don't be seduced and don't be afraid. It's really easy to think, isn't it, that if I was a keen Christian, I'd miss out. If I really live my life flat out for Jesus, there's so much I would miss out on. Well, that may be true in a certain sense, but John is putting that in a wider context. We need to see what lies behind and ahead. But we also need to get the tone of this passage right. It'd be easy to see this as being a bit kind of anti-enjoyment, anti-sex, perhaps even a little bit misogynistic. But look, please, at chapter 19, verse 6, because it's not just a case of saying no to this illicit relationship. It's about saying yes to something that is purer and better. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. There are two women in this passage, two relationships. And so what it's calling us to is not a kind of joyless abstinence, resisting the pull of anything that is attractive or pleasing. No, this passage is offering us something better, not the false pleasures of a prostitute, but the wedding supper of the Lamb, a happiness that, yes, one has to wait for, but that is true, not built on any compromise, not tinged with regret and impurity, but lasting happiness, something that is more secure. It's important to see how the motivation here is working. This passage does not send us out to grit our teeth and to resist the pull of the world, Simply, it sends us out to rejoice in our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus, to think much of him and our future with him. That's the first vision here. The world, though seductive, will fall in disaster. Moving on, uh, in the second half of chapter 19, over the page, page 1040, we see that the Lord Jesus is the lamb and the judge. If the first vision spoke about the sweep of history, the second one is much more focused on the very end when Jesus will return. Again, as before, the language is very blunt and shocking. It pictures Jesus as a warrior. He rides upon a white horse and his armies are following him. His robe, though, if you look down, uh, verse 13, his robe is dipped in blood speaks, I think, of his crucifixion. That's what we've seen all through the book, that Jesus is the lamb who was slain, that in his love, Jesus faced the punishment that we deserved, that on the cross, he stood in our place, facing what we deserved, so that we could be made right, forgiven, friends with God again. Jesus is the slain lamb, and yet he is also the rider on the white horse. 
He is a warrior. He is the judge. Now, some of what follows in the verses is pretty hard to take. The image of him treading the winepress of God's fury. It's a horrifying image. Men and women trampled. Or the angel summoning the birds of the air to feast upon the bodies of his enemies. Is this really worthy of the Bible? Uh, points, it sounds a bit more like George R. R. Martin. But again, the point of this is to show us a reality that otherwise we wouldn't be aware of, that Jesus is the Lamb and the judge. It's showing us that at the end of the day, at the end of the world, this Jesus is not somebody we can muck about with. Yes, we see him in his humility, his gentleness, his love. But we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking from that, that he's someone who can be taken lightly. I don't know if your school had somebody like that, a teacher who you knew you could do whatever you liked because ultimately they were never going to do anything about it. We had a teacher like that at school. Well, this is showing us the whole truth about Jesus. He's the lamb and he's the judge. If you're here, you're still thinking about Jesus, not sure what you make of him. It is easy to see him as a bit kind of cringe. We have a little girl and she has um, a children's Bible and Jesus, he's very smiley in the children's Bible. He has great hair. He's always helping people and petting the animals. And um, it's easy to have an impression of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Or there's the philosopher's Jesus, who's a kind of interesting intellectual question for us to ponder at our leisure. Well, there's some truth in both of those, but this is here as well. That at the end of the day, he's not the sort of person we can muck about with. He's the rider on the white horse, the terrifying general with his army. A person like this demands fealty, submission, loyalty. And yes, it's put in very dramatic terms, but think about the effect of this on suffering Christians in the first century. Doesn't Jesus see what we're facing? Doesn't he care? Won't he do anything? What a great comfort to know that the one that we follow is not a weakling. If you are a Christian, this is the question I ask of myself. Have we grown over-familiar with Jesus? Yes, I'll serve him when I feel like it. Yes, I'll obey him in that area of life, but not that area. And one out of two isn't bad. Probably Jesus should be grateful for that in any case. Knowing Jesus should be marked with affection, of course, but also with reverence. John's second vision is a reminder to us that yes, he's the lamb and the judge. Then third, you still with me? The third vision, starting in chapter 20, says that Satan, though raging, is bound and doomed. Um, this is the passage in the Bible that speaks about the so-called millennium. And um, perhaps as you saw what the passage was tonight, some of you might have been wondering what I would say about that. Well, what I'll say about that is what we've been saying all along, which is that Revelation is a book that works in visions and symbolic language. It's not about communicating literal detail. So 
last week, again, in the book, we saw the 144,000 as a picture of God's church, his, his people. And we know, don't we, that there's more than 144,000 believers. That the point of that number is not to pin down the exact number, but rather it's there to communicate the fullness, the completeness of God's people. Twelve, time, 12 tribes of Israel multiplied by the 12 apostles of the New Testament. They're all there. Completeness and vastness, 12 times 12, times a thousand, God's people. Or in uh, some of the earlier visions, John learned about some judgments that would last for five months. And again, you start to come to some pretty strange conclusions if you take that as a literal chronological number. I think it's much better to see that as it's just a way of saying that God is sovereign over these things. They will last for a set time, as long as he permits it. If I can put it like this, that numbers in Revelation are qualitative, not quantitative. That's what we've seen throughout the book. And personally, I, I can't see any reason why we would suddenly change that here when it comes to the thousand years. I really don't think this is a literal period that's going to happen either just before or just after Jesus returns. Rather, I think it's a way of describing the whole of history in the period that we're in now between the two comings of the Lord Jesus. Let me... Um, Let's look at the verses. Um, we've seen in Revelation that Satan is a ferocious enemy of God and the enemy of his people. That explains what those Christians in the first century were facing and still today. But what we have here shows another level, another truth behind even that. What we see here in verses 1 to 3 is that Satan is not a free agent. He is bound he is not reigning over this world. Christ is reigning and his people with him. That's what we see here. That in the, the crucifixion, resurrection, the first coming of Jesus, he has bound and beaten Satan fundamentally. And so while this current age is tough, it's also a golden opportunity. I think that's what this is saying, that we live now in an age of opportunity. Right, but hold on a minute. How can this make sense? Because it's saying that Satan is bound and sealed in a pit, and yet we've seen in loads of other places in the book that he's very much free and active, that he's persecuting the church, he's opposing God. How does this fit together? Well, I think it goes back to the kind of book this is, that it's not a book that trades in precise literal details. It makes an impression. And the impression that this is making is that Christ rules over Satan and has fundamentally beaten him and bound his influence. But what about verses 4 to 6, which talks about the first resurrection? Isn't that talking about some Christians coming back to life, literally, and then reigning with Jesus for a thousand years? A few weeks ago, we looked at the first chapter in the morning, the first chapter of the Westminster Confession. And Robin talked us through a little bit that there. talks about how Scripture interprets Scripture. In other words, when you come to something that is a little bit hard to understand in the Bible, as probably we can all agree at first glance, this is a little bit hard to understand, the best thing to do is to look at other passages in the Bible which talk about similar stuff and see if that sheds any light on it. Let's try that here. But for my money, there isn't a single other passage in the Bible that would even hint at some kind of literal thousand-year period. 
whereas lots and lots of passages would talk about how Christians now, even already, have been raised spiritually with Christ and are seated with him in the heavenly realms. Think of Ephesians 2 or in Colossians 3. We are raised with Christ now, spiritually seated with him, reigning with him. I think that makes much more sense of verses 4 to 6 here. Or overall, please could you turn back to Mark chapter 3. Very quickly, Mark chapter 3 on page 838. And when you get there, uh, have a look from verse 22. It's, um, it's Jesus being asked about the power by which he drives out evil spirits. And he comes up with an image that I think really helps us as we look at Revelation 20. Have a look, please. Mark chapter 3, verse 27. He describes the devil as a strong man who has in his house possessions, i.e. people, who are under his control. But Jesus says that in his coming, he's just uh, released some people there in Mark from the control of evil spirits. Jesus says that he is stronger than the strong man and has come to bind him that he might plunder his house, that is to set people free from his control. Now, do you see how that fits with Revelation 20? In his coming, Jesus has bound Satan and is now releasing men and women from his clutches. He's not bound in the sense that he's unable to do anything. He's bound in the sense that Jesus has fundamentally broken his grip on human lives. I think that's what this vision is talking about, that Christ is reigning that we have been raised with him spiritually if we're Christians and we share in his reign, that Satan is raging, but he is ultimately bound. And every day, all over the world, men and women are being freed from his grip by the gospel. So what's the thousand years then? Well, I think it's a way of talking about the times we live in now, the period between the two comings of Jesus. And it's saying that it's an age of opportunity it's a vision to give God's people hope, especially when we try and share the gospel. That can seem hopeless, can't it? But it's not. Satan is bound, and he's doomed. Have a look, verse 7. We see that there. That's what's coming. Jesus knows how long history will run for. It's a long time, but a set time. I think that's the point of a thousand years. It's a long time, but a set time. Uh, and one day, in the end... There will be a lake of fire where Satan and all his allies will be cast in. But until then, Jesus is plundering the strong man's house. And that is work that we need to join in cheerfully and do so with hope. Because although Satan is raging, he is bound and doomed. That's the third vision here. And then finally, finally, we come to John's fourth vision. Let's read it. From verse 11 in chapter 20. Then I saw a great white shark. No, um, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened which is the book of life. 
and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This fourth vision is a vision of the final day again. We've seen that before in Revelation. So what's special about this? What's emphasized here? Well, I think what's emphasized is the comprehensive nature of God's judgment. Have a look at the verses. All are judged, both small and great. The sea gives up its dead. Hades gives up its dead. The earth and sky flee away from his presence. There is literally nowhere to hide. Every single person will one day stand before the great white throne. God has his books in which are written all the deeds of all the people. I think that's what this is saying, that in the end, God's justice will be full and final. Which isn't what you would necessarily think, is it, from looking around the world? This world looks so unfair, so endlessly complicated. Who knows the truth? So many wrongs are not righted. So much evil passes unseen, let alone unpunished. There's a line from an old poem by uh, William Butler Yeats that has stuck in my head. It says that the uh, world's more full of weeping than you can understand. And I think for many of us that's probably true, isn't it? That this world's more full of weeping than we can understand. As we look around, we might long for justice, but should we expect it? Yes, says John. In the end, a time is coming when every single one of us will stand before God's great white throne. Straight away, that's an answer to cynicism, isn't it? If suffering Christians are ever tempted to that, it's not pointless serving God. There is no such thing as evil with impunity. And this also gives us hope. There is a day when God will judge and he will do a proper job. And therefore, I can leave in his hands the things, the hurts I face in life. I don't need to be embittered. I don't need to get even. That is not my place. But there is a place when all will gather before him and all will be laid bare. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? The books that God has. I never did it because I was afraid somebody would find it and read it, but some people keep a journal, don't they, of um, all that they're thinking and their secret thoughts and how mortifying for a person to think of that book being open and read. Well, God has his books and all of us are in them, the things we've done. And one day they will be open wide. And for what's written there, I guess none of us are looking forward to that day. We know that there will be so much in there for the way we've treated others, the way we've treated God, that we would be rightly ashamed of and we would fear. We know justice is a good thing in general, but we would fear what would happen to us. And so it's wonderful to read 
of another book, the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, where Jesus has written the names of all who will put their trust in him. I remember from, uh, I think it was about um, 10 years ago, it's a long time, I'm getting old, uh, at the end of a church service in a different church, um, the sermon had been on this this particular passage, and um, my friend James and I were there, we were talking to some people afterwards, we were talking to an older man that we knew in the congregation who was very nice, but a little bit eccentric, and um, we tried to make small talk, and he cut right through it. And he looked at us very intensely and he said, is your name in the Lamb's book of life? And we're like, wow. Uh, we stammered back to him, well, uh, yes. By God's mercy, we trust that it is. And he said, marvelous. And then he walked away. It's a little bit of an odd encounter, but it was encouraging. It was encouraging, a blunt question that forced us to think and answer it. And so let me ask you, is your name in the Lamb's book of life? It's simply a case of asking the Lord Jesus, of trusting him, of acknowledging that when those other books are open, we haven't got a leg to stand on, but reaching out to his kindness, his offer of forgiveness, and we swear our loyalty to him. And what a difference it makes when you can answer that question in your life, what a difference when you sin or when you suffer or when the time comes for each one of us to face up to our own mortality. Is your name in the Lamb's book of life? Well, this passage gives us so much to think about. The world is seductive, but it's going to fall. Jesus, he's the Lamb and he's the judge. Satan, he's raging, but he's bound. And justice seems so scarce, but will be done. The Lord reveals these things to us in his word. And now may he give us the strength, all of us, to live in the light of them. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this book that pulls back the curtain. Please, Lord, help us to have faith. Help us to believe what you say to us and to believe it in such a way that we act upon it. Please shape us by these truths. Please help us to have patient endurance and loyalty to Jesus right until the end. For his name's sake, amen.